happy Saturday, everybody. And more importantly, at least for me, happy October. Uh, we have an October-appropriate classic today. It is The Trial of Goody Garlic for Witchcraft in 1658, which originally came out on March 23rd, 2013. This also seemed like a good episode to share because How Stuff Works has launched a brand new podcast called Unobscured, and its first season is all about a completely different witch trial, the Salem Witch Trials. Unobscured pairs narrative storytelling from Aaron Mankey, who's the host of Lore and Cabinet of Curiosities, with interviews with historians, and you can get it wherever you get this podcast. So stay tuned at the end of today's episode, and you will hear the trailer for Unobscured. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. My name is Holly Fry. And I am Tracy V. Wilson. And it's Women's History Month. It is. Uh, and we've talked about some women already this month, but we're going to talk about some more. Uh, and one thing I think that always comes to mind for people when they are thinking about women's history is, or women in history, is the Salem Witch Trials. Yes. Which are fascinating and a very rich tapestry of things to explore. But we're actually going to turn back the clock a few decades to a witch trial that happened before the the really big onslaught of um, of the Salem witch trials, and it happened in East Hampton, right? Not in quite the New England area that that people associate with witch hunts and that sort of vindictive implementation right. of things. <laughs> but uh, it it was sort of the at the early stage. There were other witch trials happening then. This is in the um, sixteen late sixteen fifties. But as you'll see in this story not as much of a clear like how to handle it mentality as there was by the time things really got rolling in the witch trial arena right when and, when the witch trials really were underway in Massachusetts there was a lot of hanging going on yes and, and this fortunately to spoil the ending does not quite go in that direction exactly there are somewhat surprising results in this one uh, and what we're talking about is Goody Garlic, who who is a, a woman that lived in East Hampton. Uh, and this whole story starts in the spring of 1657 or 1658, depending on which calendar you're using. If you go by the Julian calendar, it would have been 57. The Gregorian calendar, it would have been 58, because the British did not switch over to the Gregorian calendar until the mid-1700s. And in the Julian calendar, March 25th was the new year. So these events happened prior to that. So you'll sometimes see them listed as 57 and sometimes as 58. It's just depending on where the source material. Which calendar. Yeah, which following. calendar they, they went by. So um, George Dewin wrote a really great piece for the New York Archives uh, talking about this particular incident. But also he kind of characterizes the times. Uh, particularly in East Hampton, as it being a very gossipy, whispery, innuendo-laden society. Yes, it put into context, it was a tiny, tiny community. There were 34 families living in East Hampton at the time. They were relatively isolated. The community was only about 10 years old. Yeah. Still trying to get a foothold, really, and establish themselves as a community, uh, which led to the unfortunate side effect of it also being very backbitey and gossipy. And people being angry at their neighbors for one thing or another. Exactly. And if you look at the town records for this time, one, you can get really lost because there just were 
so wonderfully meticulous about notating everything that was happening. Uh, but you'll see that there was a lot of discord among the citizens. And they often played out in in the way of official complaints. They it had set up this sort of structure where you could go and complain that you were shafted and did not get the right amount of corn that you had been promised or, you know, that this piece of land that was in dispute, um, they would officially complain so that that was all on record. And they really were uh, very detailed about, you know, including all of these arguments over property, money, legal claims as part of the town history. Right. I sort of imagine it as, as like a a long ago version of today's homeowner associations and all the squabbling that can go on there with the difference being that normally the homeowners association is not going to put you to death <laughs> if you were found guilty of not painting your door the right color. We would hope. Uh, and so Goody Garlic was the wife of Joshua Garlic. Her name was actually Elizabeth. Goody is actually a term similar to the way we would use Mrs. today. Uh, it's short for good wife, and it kind of is uh, a way that was often used to refer to normally married women, um, the wife of the good wife part being the clue there, uh, who were not particularly high status. It's not necessarily a um, derogative term, but it was just a very common way to right. refer to any woman. So as we go through this story, you'll hear a lot of people being referred to as Goody, and that is what that means. Yes. And she was about 50 when this whole event took place. Right. And it all sort of was catalyzed by one tragic event. And it's interesting, and we'll talk about it a little bit more later, that this event actually doesn't always show up in the tellings of the Goody Garlic story. Uh, one of the historians in particular that I read a lot of her work around it mentions that she got interested because she had gone on a tour and heard sort of the really glossy version of it. And then she knew it seemed like too sort of easy and packaged. And so she started looking at various historians' accounts of this entire um, episode and how it played out. And they there's really a lot of variety to it. And she draws some interesting conclusions, and we'll link to her research in the show notes, about why this particular event that really catalyzed it kind of gets lost. But So it starts out with a young girl by the name of Elizabeth Gardner Howell. She was married to Arthur Howell, and she was only 16, uh, and she had recently become a mother. She had had a daughter, and in the days following the child's birth, she became quite ill. Um, she, in fact, had a fevered episode in which she cried out, a witch, a witch, now you are come to torture me because I spoke two or three words against you. In the morning you will come fawning. And that all sounds very odd and sort of awkward to the modern ear. Right. But uh, that's actually recorded. It's part of the, that quote is part of the transcripts from the hearings that eventually happened. So a neighbor saw this happen. Yes, he had come to check on her. She was home alone with the child. He had actually come to speak to her husband, Arthur, but who was out and happened to witness this episode. Yes, so his name was Samuel Parson. He saw this happen and, and became worried that she was bewitched. Yes, 
and in the meantime, Elizabeth's mother, Mary Gardner, who lived very nearby, again, tiny community, so everyone kind of lives very close. It was basically a street with a row of houses on either side. Yes. <laughs> when it boils down to. Yes. And most accounts will sort of mention the, the elder Gardner's home as being just across the street. So she was very close. So Mary Gardner was ill at the time, and Elizabeth's father, Lion Gardner, uh, who was a very prominent man in the town, and he factors in a lot as the story develops, uh, left his wife's bedside to go to his daughter's house because he had been sent for and he was so worried about her, the behavior that was being described. And he witnessed the frantic behavior and her claims of witchcraft. And Elizabeth Gardner Howell actually claimed to have seen Goody Garlic, her neighbor, and a black figure in her room, which... If you were to hear somebody say that, that would be troubling. Yes. That they are seeing these visions of a person and a specter that the person has brought with them to torment you in a room. That would be troubling. Yes. Uh, so eventually, her mother Mary was well enough to to visit. She crossed the street and started trying to comfort her daughter, saying that she was having bad dreams. Uh, but Elizabeth really insisted that Goody Garlic had bewitched her. She was quite sincere on this point yes, that she that was, was what was going on. She was adamant and completely believed that that was happening. Uh, and th- that evening, or an evening related to that, three women of the town were watching over Elizabeth. And Elizabeth started to address Goody Garlic, who was not with them physically. As, as though she were in the room. Yes. yes. And she says, Ah, Garlic, you jeered me when I came to your house to call my husband home. You laughed and jeered me and I went crying away. Oh, you are a pretty one. Send for Garlic and his wife. I would tear her in pieces and leave the birds to pick her bones. Uh, And she went on because the women that were there with her watching over her uh, questioned this outburst and asked her, you know, why is she saying these things? And she replied to them, did you not see her last night stand by my bedside ready to pull me to pieces? She pricked me with pins and she brought a black thing to the foot of my bed. So she thought not only was she bringing a black specter into the room uh, that no one else was seeing, but that they, she and the specter were actually pricking her with pins. Yes. So, uh, so slightly troubling again and very adamant. I mean, she really felt strongly that this was actually happening to her. Right. She, she later had a coughing fit, which the women who were looking after her tried to calm using oil and sugar, which was an alleged treatment for witchcraft. Uh, And at that point, Elizabeth allegedly coughed up a pin. Uh, Two different women witnessed that a pin fell out of her mouth after she had this coughing fit. Yes. And that does come up later on. Again, they testified that they saw this happen. There is no clear, definitive account of how that actually happened. If it happened for real, if it was sleight of hand, if the women were fibbing later on. But there is testimony on the record that they saw this pin come out of her mouth. So that night, Goody Simons stayed the night with Elizabeth. They, um, they, She slept there in the bed with her to watch over her. And at the same time, Arthur Howell, the husband of Elizabeth, another neighbor, William Russell, and the gardener's slave, her parents' slave, watched over the sleeping women. And they kept hearing weird sounds throughout the night uh, that were not explained. There was one in a fireplace. There was one that was under the bed. But they could never locate the source of the noise. Uh, And Elizabeth would wake up periodically and claim that she was being pricked with pins. Uh, And unfortunately, Elizabeth did not recover ever. She got worse and worse. Her fever worsened and she passed away on February 23rd of 1657. Again, if we're going by the Julian calendar. Yes. 
Her baby, though, survived, even without her mother there to breastfeed her. Yeah. Which, uh, did, did you find whether they were able to find a wet nurse or? I never saw any account of uh, how the baby was taken care of in that regard. I know she did. Legally, the documents were quickly drawn up to say that she was staying with her father. Uh, it would be unusual for a baby without a mother to survive at the time, but she did, and she went on to lead, by all accounts, a pretty standard, normal life. Okay. Uh, but yeah, I wondered too, and I didn't find any um, any hard evidence or accounts one way or the other of how the baby was nourished from that point on. Right. It seems most likely that probably they found someone else in the community who yes. also either had a child or had had a child. Which was very common, and that will actually come up later in the story regarding someone else. Yes. Uh, so a hearing was underway um, uh, pretty much immediately, and by some accounts, the calendar gets a little weird because I did see some that suggest the hearing had actually started even before Elizabeth had passed, but verifying that was a little bit tricky. The dates don't always match up, but it was within a couple days, so... It is conceivable that they could have started investigating these allegations since um, claims were already being made about Goody Garlic being implicated in the illness of Elizabeth. Uh, but so the investigation had already begun by the time Elizabeth had passed and really kicked into high gear. And they wanted to determine at that point if she had been murdered and if so, if witchcraft had been involved. Because both of those things were punishable by death. And I, I feel like we should do a quick side note and mention Again, in modern times, we talk about witchcraft and we look at it as a quaint belief of times past. But it was a very real fear for this community at this time. And it was not uncommon for people in general to be afraid of the dark arts. Right. Or so, to use the dark arts to explain otherwise unexplainable things. Correct. So it um, it really was something that was taken very, very seriously. When someone was accused of something like that, it it was investigated just as we would investigate any uh, allegation today of a criminal nature. This hearing, though, was interesting because it was the first witchcraft hearing in East Hampton. There had been others in New England already, but East Hampton had never dealt with this subject before on a legal level. Uh, and a hearing began, and three village justices presided over it. They were John Mulford, John Hand, and Thomas Baker. And there is also some discrepancy about how many witnesses actually testified. Most sources cite 11, but the New York Archives telling of the story does mention 13 witnesses. So just keep that in mind. I Just in terms of volume, it seems like 11 is the more accurate, but... The uh, archivists are usually very uh, careful with their numbers, so right. it could just be a matter of someone accounting differently in historical records. And that's a pretty significant portion of the population of the town at that time. Yeah. Either way, you're close to a third, right. whichever number happens. Uh, and uh, according to uh, one text, like I said, there were 11, uh, but most interesting are that Three people that never testified that were very, very involved. One is Lion Gardner, the deceased's father. One is Goody Garlic. She never came forward to defend herself. She didn't speak up to do so. I wonder if she was given the option to do so. It seemed like she was, mm -hmm. and she just wasn't interested in addressing any of these accusations. Uh, and the other is a woman named Goody Davis, who will come up again as we go forward, the only person who wanted to defend Goody Garlic was her husband, which is interesting. 
you know, that no one would come forward to speak on her behalf. Because there are some accounts also that say that she had friends in very high places, which will figure into the lore as we go forward and how this kind of gets absolved later on. But uh, if that were the case, you would think more people would come forward to defend her. But again, dealing with a very fearful subject that was not always easily explainable. So going into this hearing, they used a seven-point system of criteria for determining the presence of witchcraft. And this list is so intriguing to me uh, because so many of them are are really what we've sort of mentioned a couple of times is, is something tragic happens that you can't really explain witchcraft. Yeah, it's like, is it unexplainable? Yeah, witchcraft. It must be witchcraft. So point one, for example, when a healthful body shall be suddenly taken without probable reason or apparent natural cause. So basically, when someone dies without an obvious cause, right. it was previously healthy. Right. And Samuel Parsons' testimony of Elizabeth's, the sudden onset of Elizabeth's illness, easily met this requirement. The next one is when the afflicted party, in his fit, tells truly what the witch or other absent parties are doing or saying or the like. So, again, kind of odd because it's basically at that point there's no way to verify. Right. They're just saying. It's what someone said. Right. You're taking someone's word for it who may or may not be ill from fever at that point or some other affliction. Uh, And several witnesses had heard Elizabeth mention the black specters being pricked with pins, Goody Garlic being in the room when she wasn't actually there physically for other people to see. Uh, So that was met very easily. Uh, The third was when there was a supernatural strength such that a strong man or two shall not be able to keep down a child or a weak person upon a bed. Uh, Arthur Howell described the ways that Elizabeth would try to strike out at the black figures uh, and how he couldn't hold her in his grasp when she tried to do this. So even though she was very ill, when she was trying to fight back against these specters that she saw, her strength appeared to be more than it should have been considering her physical condition at that point. The fourth one is when the parties shall do strange things or say strange things, and yet when out of their fits know nothing of what they did or said. So there was plenty of strange behavior in all of the witness accounts. But according to uh, one scholar, she makes an interesting point that nevertheless, and I'm quoting at this point, nevertheless, none of the testimony clarifies whether her delirium was punctuated by moments of clarity in which she was unaware of what she had said or done. So we're not sure if that... Part of the uh, criteria was actually really focused on at that point. Right. Um, But we do know that she definitely had fits. Yes. The fifth point, when a party doth vomit up crooked pins, needles, nails, coal, lead, straw, hair, or the like. Lots of foreign objects in that list. Uh, And we had the two women who we spoke about previously testifying that they saw a pin fall out of Elizabeth's mouth after she had a coughing fit. The sixth is when the party shall see visibly some apparition and shortly after some mischief shall befall him. Uh, Goody Simons testified about Elizabeth's visions of black things in the room and her rapid decline in health was already well established since many people had witnessed her going from fairly okay to really, really ill in a very brief period of time. The seventh point was when two or more are similarly taken in strange fits. So basically, when more than one person in the community is is having the same experience, uh, there were two witnesses who backed Goody Simon's claim that she had had fits after seeing specters, uh, and the garlic's black cat was implicated as a specter figure. 
Yes, so Goody Simons had said she had seen the black cat and had shortly after either had fits or her fits had gotten worse after seeing the animal. Yes. Uh, so all seven of those criteria were met easily during testimony. And then in the in the midst of all of that testimony, there were additional accusations made against Goody Garlic. So in addition to those seven criteria having been met by witness testimony easily, additional accusations were made as part of that testimony. And they sort of formed a bigger dossier of what people perceived to be witchcraft behavior around Goody Garlic. Uh, it was claimed that she caused four other deaths, one an unidentified man, one a black child, and two infants. They said that at one point she poisoned an infant with cursed milk. Uh, as we had just mentioned, Goody Simons claimed that she had fits because of Goody Garlic. There was a litter of piglets that died after the sow had a very unusual birth, uh, which was attributed to her. And in one point, an ox had broken its leg suddenly. And her husband, Goody Garlic's husband, Joshua, is also implicated here because he had apparently uttered some threats in a disagreement with Lion Gardener, who owned the ox and was the father of Elizabeth, who had just died uh, shortly before it happened. So they had had a verbal dispute, and then suddenly the ox's leg was broken. Right. So once witchcraft was established to have been involved, the next section of the hearing is... um, meeting the criteria to prove that the accused was the perpetrator of that witchcraft. So there are three rules or three criteria that that the accused had appeared to the sick party in his or her fits, that the afflicted was able to name the suspected witch uh, and that the afflicted could describe the witch's actions, all of which has happened in, in what we've described so far. Right. So the existing testimony that met the first seven criteria also pretty cleanly wrap up this portion of it as well. Uh, so at that point, uh, things are not looking great for Goody Garlic. No. Um, so one thing that's interesting is uh, historian Loretta Orion, who I've mentioned some of her work previously in this in this episode, uh, is that many of the histories of the East Hampton area mention the trial of Goody Garlic But Elizabeth Gardner Howell's death is really not part of it. The charges tend to be pretty general uh, about Goody bewitching neighbors with herbs, ruining crops, sending her specter cat after people. They're kind of more what we would think of today as pretty standard witchy behaviors of the time. Right. You know, the things that we think of historically as what people were accused of. And somehow Elizabeth's death is really not is focused on as the catalyst for this trial as it was. And uh, Orion postulates that part of that is because the Gardner family was very, very important in the area. And they really laid down a lot of the um, groundwork for the community and that they maybe didn't want their family name associated with all of this. And that some, because there are still members of the Gardner family descendants there that, you know, give tours that are part of this. And right. so Orion is postulating that they just kind of want to keep the family name out of it. Right. Well, and it was one of those tours where, uh, as we talked about earlier, about, you know, hearing the the story while on a tour. Like, it was one of those tours of, of one of the old family properties that... Uh, that she heard about this story for the first time, right? Yeah, that really catalyzed her interest in it uh, and really sussing out the truth in all of the various histories. And because the community was very, very small, uh, the Garlics had dealings with everyone, and some of them, you know, involved disagreements. 
But all of them, of course, came into focus at this time. And because there is at that point so much information about it, that's kind of what informs a lot of the historical writings about it that that give Goody Garlic more of a general witchcraft accusation rather than the specificity of a murder. One thing that comes out that's very interesting as you read this is there is an alternate villain in this story as we look at it kind of from our perspective. Right. And that's Goody Davis, who is this woman who clearly did not like Goody Garlic, and she felt that she had been personally wronged by her. And much of the testimony against Goody Garlic, even though Goody Davis never testified, it kind of came to light that it could all be tracked back to stories that Goody Davis had told people. Right. So Goody Davis had lost her own baby after what she claimed was Goody Garlic casting the evil eye on it. Uh, the the story is that Goody Garlic had noted that the baby was ill, uh, saying the child is not well, for it groaneth. Uh, and later after she said those words, the baby didn't open its eyes or make noise ever again, and it died five days later. Uh, and Goody Davis, her point of view was that this was an act of, of witchcraft or the evil eye from Goody Garlic. So an interesting element comes into the story here regarding the Gardner family, because allegedly the day that this testimony came up in the East Hampton hearing involving Goody Davis believing that her child had been cursed by Goody Garlic, servants of Lion Gardner, uh, a good man Vale and his spouse, claim to have heard Lion Gardner say, and remember, this is the father of the girl who has just died, and I quote, Goody Davis had taken an Indian child to nurse for a little wampum and had starved her own child to death. So someone with a pretty serious stake in seeing justice done or vengeance if he really believed this woman had killed his daughter was actually speaking out against the women that were accusing Goody Garlic uh, and saying, no, no, you brought that on yourself. Although, again, he did not officially testify in the trial. These were things that his servants overheard him saying. Right. And they reported back to other people. Uh, so it establishes Lion as very even-tempered and being a voice of reason, even in, you know, the depths of grief, grief over losing his daughter. And in some versions of the history, it's even suggested that Lion Gardner is actually a friend of Goody Garlic and that they have a pretty good relationship and he actually wants to protect her. We do know that uh, Goody Garlic worked for him at one point, but there's no real clear documentation that they were really any more than that, you know, neighbors and friends. I mean, there are even disputes in that long public record that I mentioned earlier between the Garlics and the Gardeners, but really there are disputes amongst almost every single family. Like you could do all of the possible permutations of family to family amongst the 34 that live there, and each of them have had some argument at some point in time that was documented. So, Right. I'm, I still keep imagining it as a, as a 17th century condo association and everyone squabbling with everyone all the time. It, it did appear to have a lot of squabbles. And at this point, there is an, another interesting development, which is that the case moves on. It, the judgment is not handed down there in East Hampton. No, they decided to send it to Hartford, which had more experience in dealing with charges like this. Uh, there was some trepidation on the parts of the magistrates about ruling in a case that had such serious consequences for the accused, which, considering the the lore of witch hunts, is pretty level-headed. Like, when you read transcripts of witch trials and, and sort of read accounts of uh, towns in which a, a big witch trial became the central focus, there tended to be 
a lot of hysteria and a lot of rush to judgment. And this is really like, we need to give this case to someone else who has more experience considering the ramifications that might come down. Yes. And it it does make me wonder if some of that is just based on the fact that it is such a small community and they do all know each other. Like if they have a sense of the level of import of each person in that community or if they just were that level-headed generally. And we don't know. So uh, Baker and Hand were then dispatched to Connecticut. They were two of the magistrates that had uh, heard the hearing there in East Hampton. And they were bringing Goody Garlic to her trial there in Hampton, or in uh, Hartford, rather. They were also finishing up negotiations to make East Hampton part of the Connecticut colony. So there was a double intent there in their travels. And Lion Gardner was actually part of the party, but records indicate he did not have any involvement in the Garlic case at that point. He was just there to assist with the Connecticut negotiations. So there's some haziness and some inconsistency at this point. Uh, there are accounts that claim that there was no Hartford trial at all and that uh, Gardner used his influence to spare the Garlics from uh, the, what was likely to happen, which was that Goody Garlic would be executed. But there are also records of the case being heard by Governor John Winthrop Jr. and his six other magistrates, as well as a 12-man jury. So we mentioned that mostly because, uh, there, I mean, there really are government documents, government records that indicate that this trial did happen. But again, it goes back to that sort of desire to do very glossy versions of history. There are many accounts that really seem to firmly believe that that trial never happened, which is kind of interesting. And so the indictment against Goody Garlic that accompanied her to Hartford reads, Elizabeth Garlic, thou art indicated by the name of Elizabeth Garlic, the wife of Joshua Garlic of East Hampton, that not having the fear of God before thine eyes, thou hast enter entertained Satan, the great enemy of God and mankind, and by his help since the year 1650, hath done works above the course of nature to the loss of lives of several persons with several other sorceries, and in particular the wife of Arthur Howell, for which, according to the laws of God and the established law of the commonwealth, thou deserveth to die." So we, we don't really have a lot of record of what actually transpired in this court. So we don't know what really happened in the courtroom. We don't really know if Goody Garlic testified. We just know that an event happened at which there was a trial. Yes. There has also never been any record of whether a witch's mark was ever found on her, which was pretty common for women who were jailed as witches to have their bodies searched pretty thoroughly for such a thing, uh, and there's never any record of one of those having been found. We don't know if that ever happened to her, but it is it was such a common practice that it would have been more unusual if it had not happened uh, for her to have been pretty thoroughly um, examined. But here's the interesting thing. Uh, the findings of the court are as such. This was actually the um, the judgment that they sent to the town of East Hampton, uh, along with some other documents, which we will talk about in just a moment. And it reads, The jury doth not find Elizabeth, the wife of Joshua Garlick, guilty according to the indictment. Joshua Garlick of East Hampton, for himself and wife Elizabeth, doth acknowledge himself bound to this commonwealth in a recognition of 3011. We'll come back to what that is. Uh, that he and his wife shall carry good behavior to all the members of this jurisdiction until the court at East Hampton in September or October next, and that they will then and there personally appear 
if he till that time continues his habitation upon the island, but if he shall remove his dwelling to the main within this jurisdiction, then they here shall personally appear at the quarter court in Hartford on the first Thursday of September next. So what that actually means is that um, Joshua actually had to pay a bond to ensure that his wife would behave going forward. Like they didn't find her guilty, but they also found her still suspicious. So <laughs> not guilty, but still suspicious. It's is kind, kind of, of like they have to do parole hearings, even though she was never imprisoned. Well, she was well, imprisoned, she was but jailed she, was, she was not found guilty. Right. Uh, and that they had to check in with the court either in East Hampton or if they moved off of that island to the mainland, they would have to go to Hartford from time to time. Uh, so, yeah, they didn't find her guilty, but also not quite not guilty. But this was a surprisingly conservative approach. There had already been witches tried in Hartford that had been found guilty and had been put to death. So it's very, very interesting that this happened. And the absence of testimony and the accounts of what actually happened at the trial has kind of created this nice little hotbed for speculation. Right. I really wish that we had those. because many people really wish that we had right. those. Like when you look at the criteria and what went on in, uh, in East Hampton, it it seems like, from the point of view of witchcraft trials at the time, to be almost an open and shut case. Yeah, uh, based the deck on the was, way those generally went down. The deck was definitely stacked against her at that point. So that's one of the reasons kind of this uh, mythology around Lion Gardner has grown up through the years is that it, people have filled in those blanks with him, you know, kind of swooping in almost deus ex machina-like and doing some wonderful thing that spared her at that point. But we don't know. What we do know is that Governor John Winthrop sent a letter to East Hampton along with that verdict, commending the community for their Christian care and prudence, and that's a quote, in examining and handling the case. And he also included in that letter the declaration of acceptance of the town into the Connecticut government. So the two things that were happening at the same time got lumped in one letter together. Uh, he also included a bill for the cost of jailing and trying Goody Garlic, which is kind of funny. Uh, if you read the letter, he's kind of like, and by the way, find attached. You owe us a little bit of money. Uh, now, in the meantime, Joshua Garlic actually filed a suit for defamation against Goody Davis, who, as we mentioned, a lot of the testimony that came up was tracked back to gossip and rumors she may have started. It is worth noting that defamation suits were pretty common when it came to settling differences at the time. Like I mentioned, all possible permutations of family to family had at some point in time had some disagreement or argument that is recorded in the the um, the town records. So it's not completely uncommon, but what's sort of an interesting coda is that Goody Davis actually died shortly after this, like within a couple of weeks. Uh, so she was never really uh, brought to any sort of accountability for any of her actions. And I, you know, don't think the defamation suit really went anywhere. No. And it, it's sort of become a legend now, uh, as many things do. Uh, a local legend in which the story that people tell sort of has a kind of glossy finish of what originally happened, but skips over a lot of per pertinent uh, details. Uh, in the legend-based tellings of the story in Lion Gardner, gives the garlics a cottage on his own land for them to live the rest of their lives in. And we know that the garlics did return to East Hampton, and they did live out their lives there. Uh, but there's 
a record of one cottage on Gardner's Island where Goody Simon actually lived, but there is no such record of a garlic house. Uh, however, they did live there in East Hampton, Goody and Joshua, uh, into their 90s. Which is so old for the time. <laughs> I know. There is a record of Joshua's death, but there's no written account of his wife's passing. So we're not sure exactly when she died. I have seen written that one died at 92 and one died at 94, uh, but I wasn't able to verify that. But most uh, historians agree that they did live into ripe old age and presumably died of natural causes there. So that's the story of Goody Garlic. She's one of the few people who was tried as a witch and sort of lived to tell the tale, although she didn't seem to say much about it. Uh, but she did survive it and go on to lead more or less a normal life for the rest of her days. Yeah, which is so unusual. Really extremely unusual. But part of that, again, she probably benefited from uh, having been on the early part of the wave of witchcraft fear and having been in a small enough community that they really were trying to take their time with the hearing and and the decision of it. Right. Well, and a lot of the s- sort of big name witchcraft trials in the United States happened a little further. About 35 north. years later and a little yeah. bit north. Yeah. North of there and a little bit later. Uh, I, you went down a rabbit hole of, uh, of like archival records mm-hmm. with this episode. I went down a rabbit hole of trying to find out for sure uh, whether Goody Garlic is the namesake of Magrat Garlic in the Discworld books by Terry Pratchett. She is a witch who uh, factors heavily into many of the books. that They're known as the witch books. Uh, there's sort of several plot lines that the Discworld books follows. And one of them is about a trio of witches and Magrat Garlic is one of them. I love her. I would not be surprised if there were some inspiration drawn. Well, and he definitely names a lot of his characters after either historical figures or sort of a, a lampooning way of coming up with neat names for somebody. Cut Me Own Throat Dibbler is the like a shuckster who sells bad stuff, for example. So uh, I went hunting for whether Goody Garlic is the source of Magrat Garlic's name and did not find a clear authoritative source on that. But I'm going to now believe that she is. And she's a fascinating story. Uh, so that is the tale of Goody Garlic and her trial that went much better than most did. Thank you so much for joining us for this Saturday Classic. Since this is out of the archive, if you heard an email address or a Facebook URL or something similar during the course of the show, that may be obsolete now. So here is our current contact information. We are at History Podcasts at HowStuffWorks.com, and then we're at Missed in History all over social media. That is our name on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Pinterest, and Instagram. Thanks again for listening. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Over 325 years ago, the community of Salem, Massachusetts was rocked by something that few ever thought possible. It's been called an outbreak, a wave of hysteria, or the perfect storm at the confluence of seemingly unrelated ideas, events, and beliefs. Whatever we try to call it, though, we always seem to miss the mark. The Salem Witch Trials is equal parts universally known and barely understood by most people. It's one of those subjects we quickly dismiss because of its deceptive simplicity. Beneath that veneer, however, is a dark and complex tale of fear. 
it's easy to lose perspective on history. The events of Salem took place over three centuries ago. That's 300 years of looking back, 300 years of storytelling, and 300 years of preconceived notions about what we think happened. From where we stand today, we've forgotten more about Salem than we ever remember. Time has taken it away from us. That's why this series exists. Over the centuries, the Salem Witch Trials have become obscured by time and distance. It's mysterious and misunderstood by most people. I want to clean that foggy window, to leave it clear and understandable. Unobscured. By digging deep and shedding light on its darkest moments, by cutting through the confusion, by letting the people and their stories move us forward, that's how we can truly learn from such a dark moment in history. Each episode of Unobscured blends my narrative approach to complex historical events, interviews with renowned historians, and a new, hauntingly beautiful soundtrack by Chad Lawson. So join me on October 3rd as we crack open the dark pages of history for the inaugural season of Unobscured. Learn more and find links to subscribe over at historyunobscured.com. Dot com.